And as you get there, you don't need to turn very far because you can turn right to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1. The word of the Lord says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is a tree, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord God, there is so much goodness in the book of Psalms, and yet particularly in this psalm that you want to communicate to us this morning. The goodness of your unmerited favor upon us as your people, the goodness of being a people who delight in you and walk in your ways. And yet you want to give us a warning, Lord, of what life apart from you amounts to and what it looks like. And so, Lord, we ask that you will open our hearts to receive the food of your word this morning, to receive it in its fullness and to receive just the weightiness of it, realizing that it is your very words to us for our good, for our joy, and yet for our life and life to the full. And so just move in us by your spirit through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as John said uh, in his prayer, we are going to be focusing on the book of Psalms today. But instead of doing kind of what feels like the impossible task of trying to give you sort of an overview of this book, I'm just going to focus on one psalm. And of course, that one psalm is going to be Psalm 1. Now, before I get into Psalm 1, I do want to start by giving you some background of this book. And my hope in doing this is that it will not only help you to understand why I picked this particular psalm, but it will also help you to be a better reader of the psalms in your daily life. And so first, the origin uh, and, the, and the original Hebrew title of this book is Tehillim. So I'll try to say that 10 times fast, Tehillim, um, which means book of praises, because this is a book of songs and poems that were used as praises to God. However, the English title that we know of Psalms, it means book of songs. It comes from the, the Greek word psalmos, um, because like a hymnal, this book is a collection of songs that would have been used both in the public life of Israel in temple worship, and also in the private life of their devotion to God. Now, as for dating its book, this book, it's very kind of difficult to know exactly the time period in which all of the Psalms were written, but most scholars agree that they come from various periods in Israel's history. 
And we know that those periods include this. Uh, the time of Moses, which is either in the 15th or 13th century B.C., the time of David and Solomon in the 10th century B.C., and then the exile and the post-exile period, which is in the 6th or 5th century B.C. And as far as authors, again, we don't know who wrote every psalm. Not every psalm has an author uh, attributed to it. But we can be fairly certain about the following authors, that David wrote around 73 of the psalms. Uh, the sons of Korah, they were kind of singers during the time of David in the temple. They wrote 11. Asaph, wrote, who is, um, was kind of like the head musician in the time of David, wrote 12. That Moses, they for sure believe he wrote one. And then Solomon, they also for sure believe that he wrote one. And even though we don't know who compiled the Psalms, there's no sort of like compiler or, or editor given, uh, there is sort of a logical flow to how the, the book of Psalms is put together. In fact, it's broken up into five different books. Book one is Psalms 1 to 41. Book two is Psalms 42 to 72. Book three is Psalms 73 to 89. Book four is Psalms 90 to 106. And book five is Psalms 107 to 150. And if you look at where each of these psalms ends, they each end with a doxology, right? And that's not on, that's not on accident. That's a, that's a purposeful thing. And the order follows a somewhat logical progression that mirrors the history of Israel from the time of David. And so we have kind of in book one and book two, actually, you'll find most of David's psalms in those two books. And it kind of follows, you, you see sort of the establishment and continuation of the Davidic covenant in those first two books, right? That theme is very prevalent there. Um, then we have crisis and exile, that theme in book three, the recognition of God's kingship in book four, and then you see this, these psalms that, are, that very much point to the return from exile and then praising God in 107 to 150. And as you read the various psalms, you'll notice that there are three main types of psalms. Uh, first, there are lament psalms, which express grief, they express sorrow and regret, and actually that makes up about a third of all the psalms, are lament psalms. Then we have psalms of praise, which declare what God has done, and then sort of praise Him in response to that. And then finally, we have this third category, which is sort of a mixture. It's sort of a mixture of lament and praise. So it's kind of praising God, a recognition of what He's done, while also at the same time just lamenting the hardships of maybe what's, what's happening around them. Now, if you really wanted to, you could actually break the psalms up into roughly like a hundred different subcategories. There are psalms that they call Torah psalms. There are psalms that they call wisdom psalms. There are um, psalms that are, are considered imprecatory psalms, if you've heard that word before. If you haven't, basically, that's, those are the psalms where the psalmist is calling judgment down on God's enemies, right? So we have, we have those kinds of psalms. We have thanksgiving psalms. Again, any number of psalms, that you, any number of categories that you could break them down into. But it seems like these three categories seem to encapsulate most of the psalms in one way or another. Praise, lament, and then sort of a mixture of praise and lament psalms. Also, since the book of Psalms is, a hymn, is the hymn book of Israel, again, it was put together over roughly a thousand years, it, it contains a wide variety of themes that are found all throughout the Old Testament. It includes the names, the attributes, and acts of God, the reality of sin and living in the fallen world, uh, the judgment of God, the hope of redemption and restoration, the kingdom of God, the wisdom of God. In fact, Psalm 1, some people call that a wisdom psalm, and hopefully you'll, you'll see why as we go through it. 
Um, and then there is a looking forward to, to the Davidic Messiah, which, of course, is fulfilled in Christ. So there. That's a really quick snapshot of the book of Psalms, right? So hopefully you got all that and you'll remember it all. I'll quiz you later. Um, but I do want to touch on one more thing before we get into Psalm 1. Because the book of Psalms is a book of poetry and songs, it needs to be read in a different way than any other book of the Bible. For instance, look with me at these verses. Psalm 103.10, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In this verse, what you have is you have the second line, which isn't necessarily saying anything different than the first line, but it's actually reinforcing the meaning of the first line, right? So he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That nor repay us according to to our iniquities is in essence saying the same thing as the first line and it's reinforcing it. And that's something that they, in the Psalms they call synonymous parallelism. If you don't remember these terms, not a big deal. But I just kind of want to give you an overview of them. Or then in Psalm 37, 21, it says, the, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. And here the psalmist is giving you contrasting opposites. It's giving you the wicked and then the righteous. And so it's contrasting those two kinds of people. That's called antithetic parallelism. And then finally... Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple, making wise the simple. And so what we have here is you have the first line, the law of the Lord is perfect, and then there's an answer in the second line, reviving the soul. And then likewise in the third line, the testimony of the Lord is sure, and then an answer, making wise the simple. And this is what is called in the Psalms, synthetic parallelism. So we have synonymous parallelism, antithetic parallelism, and synthetic parallelism. Again, that'll also be on the quiz. Um, (laughs) And I only point these out so that when you read the Psalms as poetry and songs, you won't try to read them like you read a normal story, right? Because they're, they're not, and we can't read poetry like we read a normal story. And so hopefully... It'll benefit you. Anytime that you read the Psalms, you'll begin to see and and be able to interpret them a little bit differently because you won't be thinking, oh, this is a normal story, but you realize poetry, again, a lot of the lines, that synonymous parallelism, that first one, that happens a lot where there might be two or three lines in a row and they're really just kind of saying the same thing. And the whole idea is it's reinforcing sort of the main point that's being made. Now, on to our Psalm for this morning. The reason I picked Psalm 1 is because most scholars agree that it serves as sort of an introduction to the whole Psalter or hymn book of Israel. It orients our hearts to receive these prayers and these poems and these songs as God's word. It calls us to meditate deeply on the message that God is communicating through them, and it strongly affirms the idea that how we respond to God's word, including the Psalms, and ultimately to God himself, that it determines the course of our lives. And so then this psalm is what I would call an exhortation. It's an exhortation to reject the ways and the loves of this world while at the same time delighting and immersing ourselves in God's law or word. And for us as New Testament Christians, since Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, it is an exhortation and a call to delight and immerse ourselves in Christ. And when we do this, the psalmist says that we will receive a godly or God-filled joy. 
And it is a godly or God-filled joy that will bear fruit for God's kingdom and will ultimately lead to the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And so let's begin this morning by looking at this exhortation, and it's the exhortation to reject the ways of the world and to delight and immerse ourselves in Christ and his word as we look at the root of our godly or God-filled joy. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So one of the first things that we need to notice about the psalm is actually one of the things that we tend to, I think when we read this psalm in particular, we sort of skip over. And it's that first word, blessed. And that word blessed actually comes from the the Hebrew word esher, which actually means happy, or more emphatically, how happy. And yes, if you did hear it, it is also where the name Asher comes from, right? So happy or how happy. But there's an important distinction here. So for us as English speakers, when we think of that word happy, we ultimately think of of, of it as a feeling. So as I came in, I was talking to Beverly, and I, we were talking about it being warm outside. I am happy that it's warm outside, right? Who is it? I'm also happy that my kids are almost done with school. Next Thursday, last day. Exciting. I'm also very happy, because I'm from Minnesota, that Aaron Rodgers is not a part of the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that might be the most sound you make all service <laughs> during this sermon. Um, But you see, these are all expressions of feelings. And we know that feelings are something that can be here one day, and then as circumstances change, it can be gone the next. But that's not what the Hebrew word esher or blessed is getting at. And this is really important, so listen to this. Instead of a feeling of happiness, it is pointing us to the underlying and lasting joy and gratitude that comes from being people that get to live in fellowship with their God. I'm going to say that again. It is pointing us to the underlying and lasting joy and gratitude that comes from being people that get to live in fellowship with their God. Look with me at Psalm 34, 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed, happy, joy-filled is the man who takes refuge in him. That's fellowship right there. And this kind of lasting joy, it's not something we've earned. But according to the Psalms and the rest of Scripture, it is a free gift of God that has been given to us. Psalm 32.1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See, God is the one who fully and freely forgives our sin. And according to his own grace and might, he has called us into fellowship with himself and has bestowed on us the favor of being his people. And as Christians, we know that this is a blood-bought favor that we have received through Christ and his death on the cross. As it says in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so being blessed is more than a feeling. Instead, I'll say it again, it is an enduring state of joy and gratitude that comes from having the undeserved favor and blessing of God upon us as his people. 
But there's another side to that. Because even though we have that, it doesn't mean that it doesn't require anything, with, anything of us. Now think back. Think back to the history of Israel. And you think back to the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai with, through Moses. Right? That was God freely choosing to be Israel's God, and he chose them to be his people. And yet, at the same time, if you read on, if you read on in the book of Exodus, there, there's a lot. There is the reality of blessings and curses that go along with that covenant. Meaning that in order for them to continue to experience the favor of God, that they needed to walk in obedience to him. In a similar fashion, we've received the free, uh, the free gift of fellowship with God through Christ, and yet Christ himself implies that this ongoing favor and fellowship with him, that it requires something of us. In fact, he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, know me, fellowship with me, you will keep my commandments. You will walk in obedience. And according to the psalmist this morning, if we want to continually experience the lasting blessings of joy that flow from our union with Christ, he says that it requires two things of us. And the first is this, that it requires us to put off or disassociate with the loves of this world. Again, Psalm 1.1, blesses the man who, not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, if you remember what I said, if you remember what I said at the beginning about Hebrew poetry, this is synonymous parallelism, which means that the hymn writer is not trying to communicate that there are, like, he's not trying to point out three different types of evils or three different types of evil people, but instead he is describing a comprehensive evil. And it's a comprehensive evil that is focused on or devoted to self-pleasure and earthly gain rather than the delight of God and his word. Meaning that, that he is trying to make it clear that our experience of godly joy that, that comes from our fellowship with and favor from God, that it requires something of us. It requires us to reject the self-centered and self-pleasure-seeking uh, ways of the world around us. Now think about that. If we're honest, we, I think we struggle with that. You know, if we look to the Ten Commandments, we might say, oh, sure, like, I don't murder people. I don't steal, at least maybe not what you feel is like a criminal sense. You're like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't beat my spouse, I hope, right? And in general, we try to act like decent human beings. But let me ask you this. What do we worry about the most? What stresses us out the most? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's the hours in a week that you have to work. Maybe it's inflation. Maybe it's gas prices. Maybe it's banks collapsing. Maybe it's political agendas. Maybe it's what Target's doing. Maybe it's losing your civil liberties. Maybe it's your child's behavior, your health, etc. If we're honest, from that, from our worries, what is it that we're desiring the most? Maybe it's security. Maybe it's relaxation. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's ease. 
Maybe it's leisure, well-behaved children, successful children, a long life. Maybe for some of us, it's the good old days, which is a side note. I'm only 41, almost 42, and I can't tell you how many times I think and talk about the good old days. It's ridiculous. Now, I'm not saying that these are always unimportant, but the truth for many of us is that if we're honest with ourselves, if we truly assessed our deepest fears and our deepest longings, we would probably see a person who is more devoted to their own comfort, their own pleasure, and their own gain than they are to the kingdom of God. And we might even want to defend ourselves and say, no, 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 that's, that's not me. Like, Jesus, I am willing, if you call me, I'm willing to go wherever you call me. And I want to challenge you with that. Are you really? If Jesus calls you, are you willing to do whatever he asks of you? Or are we like the people in Luke 9, 57 to 62, when Jesus says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, meaning you're going to lack physical comfort. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go. Let me first go and bury my father, meaning let me bury my father and get the inheritance. And if you remember, Pastor Dan's talked about this before. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, meaning that the kingdom of God is more important than money. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home, meaning I I cherish my family more than I cherish you. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus means following me is more important than even your family. Each of these would-be disciples were exposed, and it became apparent that, that there was something that they wanted more than they wanted Jesus. They were about their own comfort, their own gain, and their own pleasure. And if we are to be true and genuine joy-filled Christians, then we are called by the psalmist to reject this kind of thinking, to reject self-centered and self-seeking desires that can so often rule our lives. Because we cannot say that we love God while at the same time loving and living for what the world seeks after. Again, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, again, we, we, we know this passage well, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And there's a wide variety of understanding of what that word money is. You know, the, the actual word is mammon, but it can mean possessions and comforts. So the point is, is that we must reject what the world loves. But we can't stop there. Our continual experience of a blood-bought, Holy Spirit-wrought joy doesn't just rest in our ability to turn away from what the world loves. And I think we often stop there. If we feel like, well, if I just don't do evil things, right, then I'm right with God, right? And if I just don't watch those shows, if I don't just, if I don't just speak like, you know, maybe my neighbors speak, or maybe like, I, you know, 
I don't, I'm not out drinking and partying all the time. Like, I'm, I'm a good person. Like, I'm, I'm staying away from the evil stuff. I'm good. But it's more than that. It's also dependent on being a people who delight in God, who love his word, and who walk in his ways. In Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, that word delight means to take pleasure in, to desire, and to see something as supremely valuable. Let's say that again. The word delight means to take pleasure in, to desire, and to see something as supremely valuable. And then there's another word in there, meditate. Meditate means to take care for, to attend to, to practice and be diligent in, to care for to attend to, to practice, and be diligent in. So the psalmist's point is that if we're to be people who are supremely happy in God, then we need to take pleasure in and see his word as supremely valuable. And along with that, we need to be people who attend to it. We need to be people who saturate our lives in it and then put it into practice. And you can see how these two things work together, right? When we believe that something is unbelievably valuable, when we believe that something is worthwhile, when we believe that it's pleasurable and we desire it, then we think about it, right? We spend time on it. We immerse ourselves in it. We orient our lives around it. And you can see this. You can see this happening today. So think about the health and wellness culture. And in health and wellness culture, everything orients itself around diet and exercise, right? That's like their whole life is diet and exercise. For others, it might be leisure, where your whole year is centered around vacations and downtime. When's that next vacation coming? Still, for others, it might be orienting your whole existence around your kids. And if you have little kids, it can feel easy to do that. But orienting your whole focus around your kids as your sole purpose. And yet as Christians, we're called to taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. We're called to see Christ in his word as the greatest treasure that is more pleasurable and more worthwhile than anything else in all creation. And this treasuring and delighting in God's word should overflow into a life that is saturated by the word and oriented around it. And we can see the same idea. Go back one. Presented in the Psalms, Psalm 112.1, praise the Lord, blesses the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Again, delights and treasures his word. And then in Psalm 119.1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. They orient their life around it. So again, this is both delighting and treasuring in orienting our lives around God's word. But don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to feel like what I'm saying to you is that you need to go home and now all of a sudden you need to have like a longer quiet time. So if you were like spending 20 minutes in the morning in the word, now it needs to be two hours. I'm not saying that. If you have that time, great. Do that. That's a good thing. I'm also not saying that you need to go home and memorize like 300 Bible verses, even though that's good. Like if you can do that, that's really great. 
And I'm also not saying that you need to go home and now you need to be doing a deep Bible study into every single book of the Bible. Again, I commend that to you. If you can do that, great. It would be very fruitful for you. But it does mean that we need to be people that treasure our God and Savior Jesus Christ in such a way that we vigorously commit ourselves to seeking Him. We commit ourselves to communing with Him. Again, and I'm just going to say a side note here. You know, we've been, we, a couple years back, we did a year of prayer, and we've sort of continued that on in the last couple of years. And we've put this heavy emphasis on prayer because one of the greatest things that God calls us to do is to commune with Him. Right? We need to be a people that commune with Him. And then we need to be a people that live out His truth in the totality of our daily experience. And in fact, I was really convicted by this quote from Brother Lawrence, and it's so good. So if you haven't read Practicing the Presence of God, I commend it to you. It's a short little book. It's so good. And he said this. He said, we should put life in our faith. We should give ourselves utterly to God in pure abandonment, mean giving ourselves fully to and delighting in him. And we do that in temporal or earthly things and in spiritual matters alike. And we need to find, and find contentment or joy in, in the doing of his will and orienting our lives around him, whether he takes us through suffering or consolations. This truly, according to the psalmist, is the path of unspeakable, inexpressible, and lasting joy. It's the root of godly joy. And now, I realize as I look at the time here, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time um, on that first point, and the reason is, is it's the most important part of the psalm. Um, and everything else is what flows from either choosing to live a life that, in, into, into that godly joy, or it's the results of living apart from it. And so my last two points are going to go much quicker through the rest of this psalm. And the second point is, is this, is the fruit of godly joy. Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that, that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so the person who delights in Christ, the person that orients themselves around his word and experiences his lasting joy is a person that is rooted and planted by streams of living water, meaning that they are drinking deeply from Christ and his word in such a way that it is flourishing in them and it's bearing fruit. And now we want to be careful here because when you read some of these words, right, when you, when you read words like yields its fruit, when you read words like he prospers, we think of those things, and the first thing that comes to mind is money or material possessions. And, and if God blesses you with, with money, if God blesses you with material possessions, great. But we want to be careful because that's not, a, that's not exactly what the psalmist is trying to get at. But the reality is, is that trees, when they bear fruit, they bear fruit for a purpose. And the purpose of that fruit, when it comes, is to nourish the, the, the people, right? And, and if it's out in nature, the animals that come and eat from it. 
And so meaning that the fruit that Christ produces in our lives as a result of delighting in him and orienting ourselves around him is ultimately others-focused. And I'm going to say that again. Meaning that the fruit that Christ produces in our lives as a result of delighting in him and orienting our lives around him is ultimately others-focused. Yeah, that's convicting, isn't it? I know, I, I can freely confess that I'm a very selfish person, right? And yet I'm so convicted by the fact that the fruit that comes from delighting in him, from knowing him, from orienting our lives around him is ultimately meant to be used for the good of others. First and foremost, it's about pleasing and glorifying God. As it says in Colossians, Colossians 1.10, Paul says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, by what? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. First and foremost, bearing fruit as a Christian is about pleasing and glorifying God. And then secondly, in Galatians 5.13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers, not only to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so second, the fruit that God produces in our lives is meant to be used to serve and build up others. So then the fruit that God produces in our lives should be recognizable as it clearly displays the greatness and glory of God, and in so doing, it works for the good of others. But if we're people that don't treasure Christ, and this is, I'll admit, this, this part is um, not anxiety-fielding, but it's very sobering to me. If we are people that don't treasure Christ, if we are people that don't orient our lives around him, we need to understand that we're still producing something. Verse 4 of Psalm 1 tells us that, that, that we are wicked people who produce chaff. Now, if, if you don't know what chaff is, chaff is basically the husk of wheat, right? And so what they would do is they would take the wheat, they would kind of throw it up in the air, and the wheat was heavy, and so that would fall to the ground, and then kind of the husk and the chaff would kind of blow away. Meaning that the fruits that come from a life that, doesn't tre that, that don't treasure Christ won't last. This kind of person won't be storing up treasures in heaven. What they do won't have any lasting or eternal value. And they will come to the end of their life and will realize on that day that they've wasted it. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves, that, that sobering question for me is, what fruit are we producing? Is it God-glorifying, kingdom-building, others-focused fruit? Or is it chaff that won't last? Finally, now that we've walked through the root of godly joy, we've seen the fruit that godly joy produces, we're ready to conclude this psalm with the sobering reality of the results of godly joy. 
Psalm 1, verses 5 through 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist doesn't mince words. I kind of wish he did, but he doesn't. He doesn't hold back in verse 4 about the reality that delighting in living for something else besides Christ will produce worthless fruit. And he doesn't hold back here in letting us know what results from this kind of life. If you're here this morning, even if you call yourself a Christian, and you are not seeking to treasure Christ and to orient your life around him and his word, then you are living a life that is in danger of ultimately ending in an eternity apart from God in hell. The psalmist says, you will not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of those who are made right by Christ, but instead, you will perish. That's hard. But, if you are someone who desires to treasure, to trust, and to delight in Christ above this self seeking pleasure of this world. And if you are seeking to orient your lives around his word, his will, and his ways, even though we we know we struggle, we know we do it imperfectly, but if that's you this morning, then there is good news for you. That you have the promise of the present and lasting joy of God's favor. You also have the promise that God is working in you and through you to produce lasting, God-glorifying, others-focused fruit. And you have the promise that you are intimately known and loved by God. And you have the glorious hope of an everlasting eternity that will be filled with treasuring and enjoying Him. And so my question for us this morning is, who are we? Are we the fruit tree or are we the chaff? Are we rejecting the self-centered ways of this world or are we walking in them? Are we seeking to delight and orient our lives around Christ or around something else? And kind of as the barometer of where you're at and where I'm at, are we experiencing the favor and lasting joy of being God's people? And I want to say that again. Are we experiencing the favor and lasting joy of being God's people? Because only the path of fruitful, Christ-honoring, delighting leads to a life of joy. And the path of empty, worldly, pleasure-seeking leads to death. And the only question that we have to answer is, which one will we choose? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you continually say, in your word, that that in you there is life and life to the full. You said to your disciples and then to us that that I've spoken these things to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And Lord, I, I pray that you will help us this morning to just see and believe and take hold of the fact that, that you are more delightful, you are more pleasurable than anything in all of creation. 
that we, when we delight in you, when we immerse ourselves in you, when we orient our lives around you, there is an unspeakable and lasting joy that can never be taken away from us. And my prayer for each one of us is that you will help us to believe that, that you will help us to take hold of those promises and that you will help us to live into them as your people for the building of your kingdom, for your great glory, and for the good of others. Until that day that we see you and treasure you and experience you in your fullness. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.